the discussion going on right now about racial inequalities, racial injustice, that discussion includes conversations about healthcare and education and policing and income inequality. And these are all important topics, but, but they are not something that I will be dealing with and discussing here. I want to discuss the, the root of racial tension, the root of racial hurt. You see, I don't believe that we'll ever be able to fully solve the problem of racial injustice. We should keep trying by all means, but, but it will be a battle for the rest of our lives, and it's something that we must be, be cognizant of in every aspect of our lives. I say that because racial injustice is a result of sin. It is not a result of politics. It is not a result of, of, of uh, laws. It is a result of sin. There were some last week that said, you know, that my sermon was irrelevant or unnecessary. Others stated that discussion of race divides, it doesn't unite, and we don't need to be divided. But when I read the Bible, I see that in both Testaments, if we read the Bible honestly, we'll see that in both Testaments, there are honest conversations about race. And that Jesus told stories confronting the biases and the prejudice and even, yes, the racial, uh, racist attitudes of the people of his day. Paul confronted racial prejudice in, in the Jewish community against the Samaritans and the Gentiles. James, in his book, confronted issues of, of, of favoritism within the community of faith. We even find in Scripture, we find in Scripture the three angels' message, which points to this picture of equality. Why was there so much written in the Bible about racial conflict and calls to be better? Because the injustices that we are fighting right now, they were fighting then. But it's not just that. I believe that, that the reason why there is so much in the Bible and there's so much that we can speak about on this topic from the Bible is that because it is sin and thus something that God knew, we, knew that we would need instruction on. It is interesting. I can get up here on a regular basis and I can speak out against greed or pride or, or lust or, or legalism. And most of the time, folk are fine with that. They even expect it. What we forget is that racism, or if you don't like that word, then bias or, or prejudice or favoritism falls into that same sin category. And we don't have to be blatant racist to still be sinful against minorities. I know that also some people didn't like that I, that I specifically pointed the finger at white people. And I understand that. I am a white person and I, and I know what it feels like to be sitting there and to, to have someone point the finger at me. I was at Southern Adventist University, a student at, at Southern Adventist University, and a fellow student was speaking during Black History Month in one of our chapels. And he began to tell a story, an illustration of, of someone working in a cotton field. And he paused and he said, uh, to my black brothers and sisters, some of you may need to lean over and explain this to those of the fair complexion as they won't understand 
what I am saying. And in that moment, I remember getting so mad. I knew that kid. He grew up in inner city Miami. I don't think he had been anywhere else but the city. And I thought to myself when he said that, my grandparents are farmers. I've actually been in a cotton field. And by the way, I can tell all of you that picking cotton is not fun or easy. Cotton is not light and fluffy like you buy in the store. It is sticky, it is messy, it is prickly, and it has some funky seeds in it. But when that peer singled out us that were white in the room, I immediately got defensive and thought to myself, why does he have to call out white people especially when he has never been in a cotton field and I have? So if I understand how that feels, then why would I call out the dominant group? Here's why. Because that was many years ago, and I've read the Bible much more since that time. And, and, and something I realize is that throughout Scripture, when Scripture is talking about racial disparities or, or racial tension, the Bible singles out, almost always singles out the dominant group. It doesn't say, hey, this group is being unjust and unfair and prejudiced and oppressive and so I want both of you to come together and work on it. No, the Bible calls out the group that is doing wrong. It doesn't say, hey, you both need to work on this. It tells the dominant group, do better. I think of Paul's story in the book of Galatians. He is writing to the church in Galatia, a church that is, that is, that is mixed. It is a church of, of Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Greeks. And Paul is about to come to a very famous verse, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. And he uses a story to set up that verse. That verse, if you don't know it, is this. There is no longer Jew nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And to set up this famous verse that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, he tells a story. The story of Peter at Antioch. Peter, one of the church leaders, and how he was showing favoritism towards the Jews, excluding the Gentiles. How he was, when he went into the room where everyone was eating, he didn't sit down with, with those that were of another race than him. He went and he sat down only with the Jews. And how because of his bad example, others were following him, including Barnabas, Paul says. Even Barnabas, Paul's own disciple, began to follow Peter. And other Jews were doing so as well. Paul doesn't say, so I said to them, hey, we need to get both groups together and work on this. No, what does Paul say? Paul says he went to Peter and he confronted him. He rebuked him strongly, he said. Why is he telling this story? He wants the Jewish people in that church in Galatia to understand something. That in God's eyes, we are all level. We are all the same at the foot of the cross. And he doesn't do this by saying, hey, all of you matter, and so let's work on this. He does this by saying, this is a problem in our world that one group has dominance over another. One group shows favoritism over another. 
and you must do better. So yes, I singled out the dominant group in our church and in Adventism in North America, and I will continue to do so because the Bible does that. But I'm not doing this as a political position. It is not a political issue. It is not about Trump or Biden, left or right, GOP or Democrat. I'm talking about it because it is a sin issue, and that is part of my calling to address sin. So where does sin begin? Where is the root of all sin? Where is sin planted and buried? In our hearts. In our hearts. What is the only way to get rid of sin from our hearts? The only answer to the sin problem is Jesus. Only he can heal sin. And I want to share with you all uh, one thing that must take place in our lives in order for us to excise the biases or the prejudices or, or the, even maybe in some cases, the racism that exists in us. So this week we're looking at the heart. Next week we're gonna talk about some actual practical steps outside of the heart as well. Last week we looked at the good picture of the, uh, we looked at the big picture and the call to be good Samaritans. And this week, And next week, we're going to narrow in on how we can actually be good Samaritans. And it begins in our hearts. And so let's go to John chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 15 and verse 5. I'm just going to read the one verse, John chapter 15 and verse 5. This is Jesus speaking. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, he said, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you will can do nothing. The first words of this verse are I am. In the Greek, ego, me. I am is a title of God and, and it may seem like a funny title to some of you for, for God. I am, that seems like an interesting title for God. But in the Old Testament, there is a story of the man Moses and when he is called by God, he is called by God to go and deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. The Israelites were in Egypt and they were under bondage. They were slaves in Egypt. And and God goes to Moses and says, you are going to go and deliver my people to, to lead my people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And when Moses asks this question of God, he says, well, well, when I go to the people, who am I to say sent me? And God responded, tell them, that I am sent you. The I am came to mean many things, but in part it came to mean the God of all authority, the God of all power, the perfect and the one true God, the living God, the God of love and the God of mercy. Thus, in Jesus, he says, I am. Jesus is saying, I am the all-powerful vine. I am the all Uh, the, the almighty vine. I am the vine of perfection. I am the vine of, of strength. I am the vine of love, the vine of mercy. And then he says, and you, believers, are the branches. Well, what do branches do? If they are healthy, they bear fruit. In fact, the Bible, the scripture, John chapter 15 and verse five, tells us they bear much fruit. Fruit is simply this. It is a symbol of, of living by the guidance and the dictates of Jesus. 
That is what fruit is. Fruit is simply a symbol of living by the guidance and the dictates of Jesus. Now here is where we get lost. Last week I called us to be good Samaritans. And because I was addressing this message in the context of of racial injustice, some who were opposed saw this as a political message and they wanted to correct my politics. On the other hand, some who were in support of the message also saw it as a political message and their minds jumped immediately to change made through political action. Now I believe in vote and protest, but to to really be a good Samaritan and for us to go forth with the correct vote and protest, we have to have heart change. We can no longer see this issue as a political issue. We can no longer see this as social justice. We must see this as a biblical issue. We must see this as a sin problem. We must see this as as biblical justice. If the church wants to be a true player in the conversation that is going on in our world to address the social ills of our society, then we must have heart change. And this comes only by being connected to the vine. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do some things. No, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, you say, well, surely we can do something. No, not in the spiritual realm, you can't. Yeah, you can still vote. You can still march. All things that I support. But in the spiritual realm, the level where real change has to take place, the the level where, where racism or bias or prejudice or favoritism or whatever word you want to use must be excised is through the spiritual realm. And that is something that only God can do. I'm reading a book called Protest and Progress by Calvin Rock. It is about the black experience in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I was struck by something. I was struck by the idea that the truth that, that, that came out. All of the early black pioneers in Adventism, I would say the, the pioneer reformer, black reformers in Adventist, who were pushing for justice and parity in the church, who were, who were protesting against the wrongs that were taking place in the church. They weren't doing so out of selfish motives. They were doing so because they saw injustice and lack of parity. They were doing so because they saw uh, social hurt and suffering as something that negatively ex- uh, affected the spread of the gospel. They didn't see it as a political, they didn't protest because it was political. They didn't, they didn't challenge the system because it was political. They did it because they were worried about the gospel, because they saw that racial inequality, they saw that racial pain and suffering is not a political issue, it is a biblical issue. It is a sin issue. Charles Marshall Kinney, he is referred to, and I didn't even know who he was, but in this book I read about him, he is referred to as the father of black Seventh-day Adventism. And in around 1905, he was, he was given an opportunity to speak, to address the general conference in session. For those of you that may not be Adventists that are watching, I know I have a few friends out there that are watching that are not Adventists. The general conference in session is basically the body of leadership 
that votes on policy and direction for our denomination as a whole. And Kinney was calling for reform in the way that black people and white people work together. And he was protesting against the way that it was currently happening. But in his protest, he said, these are my priorities. And to me, this is just beautiful. He said, these are my priorities in my protest. First, that all we do be pleasing to God. Second, that it will not compromise the denomination. And third, that the position taken will be of best interest to the cause, the spreading of the gospel. That is not a man who saw social justice, but he saw biblical justice. That was not a man who was taking a political issue, but he was confronting a sin issue. That is not a man who who had a heart just to protect himself. That was a man who wanted to protect the kingdom of God. He understood that these things that we are dealing with today in the here and now, and they were dealing with then in their time as well, are a sin issue, and they must be excised by our connection to Jesus Christ. Kenny was a man that was a branch connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ. How do we begin to see this issue as white people and as black people, but I'm speaking particularly to my white brothers and sisters right now, how do we begin to see this issue as a gospel issue and not a political issue? Well, first, we have to be daily connected to the vine. And really, that's the one thing that we have to do. There's gonna be an addendum to it, but, but we have to be daily connected to the vine. Only then will we bear fruit. Here's what daily connecting to the vine looks like. It involves every single day praying and studying God's word. Not thinking I understand God's word and, I, and, and God's word is, is, is a reflection of my political views. No, but really studying and understanding God's word. It is only through spending time with Jesus Christ that, that we will be able to begin to, to be vines or to be branches that bear much fruit. I was watching a Garth Brooks documentary. Yes, I love Garth Brooks, and I like country music. And when Garth was at the zenith, the the pinnacle of his musical career, he had just reached selling 100 million albums, more albums than the Beatles, more albums than the Rolling Stones. Garth Brooks, the all-time leading solo artist, more than even Michael Jackson, And he was talking to one of his daughters. His daughter was maybe five or six years old. And he was talking to his daughter. And and she was telling him a story. And in the midst of that story, she said a word. She said, both. And he thought, what is that word? He said, what did you say? She said it again. And she said, both. And he said, who says both? He says, in our family, we say both. No one says both. And he said, then it struck him. And he realized there were other words. She is talking like her nanny. And he said, my kids, unless I do something, are going to be like someone else. And in that moment, he made a decision to retire from music. And for 14 years, he didn't record any albums. He didn't tour. He didn't produce music 
for 14 years, he spent every day helping his daughters get ready for school, helping them get to bed, to bed at night. One of the daughters in the documentary, uh, and he has three daughters, one of them is actually in seminary. She's doing her doctorate in biblical studies. But one of his daughters, with tears streaming down her face, said, if my dad did not make the deci- that decision, I would be a far different person than I am today. And she is right. Because we become who we spend time with. If I, want to, if I want to, if you want to see real change in the church, if you want to see real change in your heart, we must spend time every day with the vine, Jesus Christ. But here's the addendum. And this might be a challenge even more so for some of you. That time has to be surrendered time. That means that I go into that time willing to have God say I'm wrong about what I think is right right now. By surrender time, I mean when I'm spending time with God, I have to be open to the idea that he will tell me that I need to change and that I am a sinner. You know, there's a lot of folks throughout history that have called themselves Christians, that have, that have, that have celebrated things in church, that have proclaimed the same message that we proclaim, that Jesus saves, and they can still be horribly wrong. You have to be open, you have to be willing, you have to be ready to accept God telling you you're wrong. When you're spending that time, you have to be ready for God to convict you and open your eyes and say, you know what? I've been wrong this whole time. There's a story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, that I want to read to you and then we will soon close after that. But Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, at Caesarea, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. That means he was a Gentile. He was a foreigner to the Jews. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's talking about the disciple, the apostle, the one that walked with Jesus for three and a half years, Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants And he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now there's a problem here in this story. If you were hearing this story for the first time in the Jewish context, you would know the problem to that story. The problem is this. God is sending Cornelius to find Simon Peter, the disciple of Jesus. But here's the problem. Peter is prejudiced. Peter has biases against the Gentiles, which is what Cornelius is. There might be even some traces of of racism in Peter's heart. So while Cornelius' men are on the way, the Holy Spirit has to go to work on Peter while Peter is connecting to the vine. Look at verse 9. 
About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Peter is doing what we should do every day. He's spending time connecting to the vine. And while there was food being made, the Bible tells us that Peter fell into a trance. He, he went into a vision and he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet, sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. These were unclean meats. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, he's like, what is that about? Does God really want me to start eating these things? That's not what God was saying at all. But while he was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Remember, he had the dream three times. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to them, said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. The Bible says the next day, the next day Peter started out with them and, one, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. So other Jews went along. Verse 24, the following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. This is a good evangelist right here, Cornelius. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Some of you say he fell at his feet to worship. But Peter made him get up. He said, stand up. I am only a man myself. While talking to him, Peter then went inside the house, which is not an okay thing in Peter's context, and found a large gathering of people. And Peter immediately addresses the issue. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me, Peter saying this, that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. What Peter is saying is a day before when I had that dream, I would have called you impure and unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Then Peter began to teach them, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And then listen to verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. God does not show any favoritism. What an amazing story. Peter acknowledges. He admits, a few hours ago, I would have thought you all were unclean, but God has told me differently. There's a lot related to racial issues that we could address in this story and then from chapter 11, because Peter now has to go meet with the rest of the Jews and convince them 
that the Gentiles are okay. But what I was praying about this week is that I want to be Peter. I want to be open to God showing me. It doesn't have to be dramatic like a trance. God can just impress it upon my heart. I want to be open to God showing me my blind spots, where I can be better. And I want to be Peter in this. When I realize that God is saying, you know what, Chad? You have some biases. You know what, Chad? You have some prejudices. You know what, Chad? You have some, 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 some racial tension that you have caused in your life. I want to be Peter and say, yep. Okay, let's go and be different. Y'all, to need our hearts to still change, even after being Christians for a long time, is not a bad thing. Think about this. Peter walked with Jesus for three and a half years. He had been a leader in the church of Jerusalem by this time for, for eight to ten years. And Jesus still had to send him a vision to show him, you have some prejudice in you, and we need to get rid of that. Why would we then think that we maybe don't have some biases and some favoritism and, and maybe some blind spots about the issues that are taking place in our society right now? If Peter needed to be shown this after three and a half years and another eight years of leading God's church, why would we not need to be shown this as well? I think some of us, including me, need to attach to the vine daily, Jesus Christ, in surrendered time so that Jesus can truly convict us. And when Jesus convicts us, that we will do what Peter did. Truly, God has shown me. So I did not object. Let me go now and serve you. Last week, and I preached the message on the Good Samaritan, and I got a lot of feedback. Mostly good, but a little not so good as well. Spent about two hours Monday morning responding to people's insights on my uh, sermon. But I want to share with you uh, part of one of the messages I received from a lady in Pennsylvania. She said this, Pastor Stewart, I have watched your sermons since the shutdown. I am a white, almost 60-year-old woman. I watched your sermon, sermon on Do Not Pass Me By. The sermon was not toe-stepping. It was a bolt of lightning hitting through cyberspace. Listen to what she said. I have come to believe and justify truths that I am not hurting anyone. I am sitting here in shock and disgrace before my God on my lack of response to his hurting black and brown children, and I callously make excuses. I am sitting here in tears on the shame of compliancy and callousness in these whores. I have a black sister. She's meaning a black friend. She called and wanted a conversation, and I did not want to talk to her because I was uncomfortable. But now that Jesus used you to throw lightning from heaven, I pray for forgiveness and to find a way to help with, the healing, with healing the pain that the black and brown community are going through. Slay says, I'm sitting here, I'm 60 years old. 60 years old. And I realize that in my silence, and in my uncomfortableness with this subject, that I too have some biases.
I would tell my sister from Pennsylvania that you are in good company with Peter and so many others. Because when conviction came to you, sister, you responded as Peter. You followed God. I wonder if there are truly any of us that don't have some bias, some prejudice, some, some favoritism in our life. Are we willing to not only connect to the vine as Christians, but are we willing to connect in surrendered time and allow God to do in us what he did in Peter? To say, hey, Peter, we've got a problem. You've got some biases. You've got some prejudices. And it's time for us to get rid of those. Jesus will do that for us. And only Jesus can do that for us. It's not through a vote. It's not through a protest. It's not through just wanting to ignore the situation. Only as we connect to Jesus and say, Jesus, show me my biases. Can we truly, truly have hearts of change and like my sister from Pennsylvania, say, Jesus, I repent, and now I want to go and help heal. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the example of Peter. I thank you for the example of the sister in Pennsylvania. Thank you for the example of Paul. Paul hated the Christians, and yet when he was struck blind, he repented and he turned and followed you. Lord, help us not to filter things through our political lens, but help us to see that there is biblical precedent for addressing the suffering that is going on in our world right now. And that you call us to go and do better. Lord, confront me, I pray. Confront all of us with our silence, our sinful silence, our sinful bias, and the sinfulness of putting our politics over the biblical picture. Help us, Jesus, I pray. And I thank you because I know, I know that you can heal and you can give every one of us a new heart. So do that for us in the white community. Do that for our brothers and sisters in the black and the brown community. Do that for all of us, Lord, but, but may we be open to it. In your name I pray, amen.